Today on the John Ackerberg Show, we are examining the evidence from astronomy that points to an all-powerful creator. Do you know what happened when the universe was only 10 millionth of a trillionth of a trillionth of a trillionth of a second old? And what happened in the other parts of that first second that made it possible for human life to exist on Earth in the future? Today, you will find out. My guest is astronomer and astrophysicist, Dr. Hugh Ross, who obtained his Bachelor of Science degree in physics from the University of British Columbia, his PhD in astronomy from the University of Toronto, and for five years was on the faculty at Caltech. We invite you to join us for this special edition of the John Ankerberg Show. Welcome to our program. I'm John Ankerberg, and I have a very special guest today with me. He is astronomer and astrophysicist, Dr. Hugh Ross. Hugh obtained his Bachelor of Science degree in physics from the University of British Columbia and his PhD in astronomy from the University of Toronto. Then, if that wasn't enough, he went for five years and joined the staff at Caltech and did postdoctoral research on quasars. And then, on the side, he established the ministry Reasons to Believe. And Hugh, I'm really glad that you're here today. And I want to start with a real hairy question. Our topic is how the latest scientific discoveries reveal God. And actually, you are a non-Christian, and it was a science that brought you to God. So I'm going to start with people that are out there that think that we're just going to talk about the Bible and that. You're wrong. I'm going to start with what you call the Big Bang, the beginning of the universe. And I want to talk about the first one second of the Big Bang, all right? And that one second is divided into, what, three or four parts. So I want you to tell us why every part of a second is important, or we as humanity wouldn't be on the Earth today. Take us slowly through the first second of the Big Bang, divide it into the pieces, and then tell us why we wouldn't be here unless the Big Bang had been divided that way. Well, I'm going to focus on the first billionth of a second, because that's where all the exciting stuff happens. <laughs> okay. okay. And so uh, we have the beginning of the universe, and thanks to the space-time theorems, we know that the cosmic beginning includes the beginning of space and time itself. Right. In fact, the universe begins with only space-time dimensions. There's no matter yet, there's no energy yet. And there are nine dimensions of space and one dimension of time. But they're created with the property of ongoing expansion. So these 10 space-time dimensions expand from an infinitesimally small volume. And at 10 to the minus 43 seconds after the cosmic creation event, six of the nine dimensions stop expanding. That happens when gravity separates out from the other three forces of physics that leads to what we uh, astrophysicists call symmetry breaking. And the breaking there is a stoppage of these six dimensions out of the nine. But if that didn't happen, there'd be no particles in the universe. So the fact that we have protons, neutrons, and all the other fundamental particles is thanks to that event that happened uh, when the universe was a 10 millionth of a trillionth of a trillionth of a trillionth of a second old. And if we didn't have those protons and neutrons, what would be our uh, future? 
Well, there wouldn't be any particles at all, and so there'd be no possibility for life anytime, anywhere in the, in universe. the universe. Right. The second big event happens when the universe is a hundred billionth of a trillionth of a trillionth of a second old. That's when the strong nuclear force separates out from the electroweak force. You know, as the universe expands, it gets colder and colder, and as it gets colder and colder, the one unified force becomes two, three, and four. And so uh, when it becomes uh, three, uh, this is when you have another symmetry breaking that causes the universe to hyperinflate. It's called the inflation event, mm -hmm. where the universe expands at millions of times the velocity of light. Now, it happens within a split second. By 10 to the minus 32 seconds, that hyperexpansion's all over. But what that does is allow the universe to be the right size at this time in history so that we can have life and yet have everything in the universe thermally connected. Those are all crucial features uh, for life to exist. And then a little bit before a billionth of a second after the cosmic creation event, uh, we have uh, the electromagnetic force separating uh, from the electroweak force. And uh, that's very close to when we see what we call the great annihilation event. The universe has virtually equal numbers of particles and antiparticles, but because of that symmetry breaking, there's about a hundred billion and one particles for every hundred billion antiparticles. And when a particle and antiparticle get close together, they annihilate one another and become pure energy. And so this great annihilation event reduces the mass of the universe down to a hundred billionth of what it was before. The just right mass we need for life and the just right energy production we need for life. So even in the first billionth of a second, we see this extraordinarily fine-tuned design of many different features of the universe that makes possible the future existence of life. You said there are 10 dimensions, and uh, we talked about the fact of you've got mass, you've got uh, energy, you've got space, you've got time. What happened to the other six? The other six are the same size today that they were when the universe was 10 to the minus 43 seconds old. And the universe at that time is still incredibly compact. These six dimensions uh, are curled up around the three big dimensions, uh, but the cross-section of the dimensions is 20 orders of magnitude smaller than the diameter of an electron, which is why people haven't really noticed them, not even physicists have noticed them, until about a quarter of a century ago. Yeah. Now, for those of you that uh, just got snowballed in your mind because of what he said, you're talking to a genius here. And uh, so I'm gonna go back and forth between his genius and uh, some common stories that you might actually understand, okay? But those of you that are geniuses out there understood what he said, why was that important to you in terms of bringing you to God a little later on? Why did that make sense to you that there had to be a creator? Well, I've been studying astronomy seriously since I was seven years of age. And every year as I was growing up, I would study a different subdiscipline of astronomy. At age 16, I focused on cosmology, the science of the origin and history of the universe. And that was a time when there was a lot of competing explanations uh, for the universe. Was it steady state? Uh, was it an oscillating universe? Was it a hesitating universe? Was it a Big Bang universe? But even at that time, 
the evidence was heavily favoring Big Bang cosmology. And I knew it was Big Bang, the universe must have a beginning. If there's a beginning, there must be a cosmic beginner. So that's when I began my search to discover uh, this cosmic beginner. Yeah, so in essence, you believe that there was a God, but uh, you also believe, like a lot of scientists, that uh, there is a, a deistic God out there. He's not personal, but he created it all, but he's not involved with us, all right? And so you basically thought, how could a God who did all of that magnificent creation, why would he care about one little speck of a guy on earth who, you know, didn't know him and had just figured out a little bit of what he had done? You just basically put God on the shelf. You believed in him like Einstein. Einstein believed that God was there. He was a deist. He didn't believe that God was personal, all right? Let's go back to something they can understand. The fact is, when you were growing up, uh, you started to get interested in science, and you were so interested, I think this went back to even further than 17. You were, what, seven years old. We're going to talk about that in the next program, some questions that you asked your parents. But they did the right thing. They sent you to the library. Well, you went to the library, and the fact is they only let you read so many books because you were seven years old. Problem was you read all of them. Right. And so then you asked for a pass to go to the next level, which was basically all the way through high school up to college and um, you read all of those books. And so then you asked for a pass, and you got one to the library at the University of British Columbia, right. which had how many volumes in, in books there? Well, they didn't have as many as the Vancouver Public Library, but they had way more books on science. And yeah, so, and so you cruised through all of those and books. And they had journals. I was looking at all the journals, too. Yeah. And so you just were, were sucking all of this stuff up, all of this information in your mind, and it reinforced the fact that there had to be a creator. It, you just were like Einstein in the sense that you didn't think he was personal and interested in you. So That's where I began. But one of the things I discovered was the universe has to be exactly the mass that it is for there to be any hope of life in the universe, which gave me the impression this God that created the universe seems to have a very high value and purpose for life and human beings in particular. Otherwise, why would the universe be just the right mass and just the right size? Make the universe slightly smaller in mass, all you get is hydrogen and helium. Make it slightly greater in mass, all the elements are like iron or heavier than iron. In both cases, no carbon, no oxygen, no nitrogen. So that was the first clue I had. Maybe it's more than just a deistic God. Maybe it's a personal God, a theistic God. Yeah, and you had two helps. You had one was the definition of cosmology, and then you also read a book by Dr. George Roche, and that kind of uh, told you kind of the direction that you were going. Do you remember what that was? Well. That was a book that was written quite a bit after I became a Christian, but okay. I, I cite it because he made the point, what you think about the universe is very important. It's not a trivial idea. Why? 
Well, because if the universe really is fine-tuned in many different ways to make our existence possible, that would indicate that the universe was created for the specific purpose of providing a home for we, we human beings. And given the vast extent of the universe, two trillion galaxies, where each galaxy has about 100 billion or more stars, that's a lot of investment that's being poured into making possible our existence as God must place a very high value on us human beings. Yeah, and then you realize that God must be the ultimate reality that's behind all of this, and it led you to start thinking about, was he interested in you? Yes, and uh, that's what uh, led me to say, hey, I need to see if I can find who or what this cosmic beginner is. But and, you uh, did it in a very interesting way, is the fact is that in your uh, studies, you found out, yeah, there was a lot of religions in the world and people were uh, uh, very serious about their religions. And so you thought, well, maybe God's got himself revealed somewhere in one of these religions. And so you started pulling out the holy books of the different religions. Again, you were not a Christian and you just thought you had a certain criteria for what you expected to find the Creator talking if He actually talked in a book. Give us the criteria and then what you did. Well, I started off by looking at the great philosophers and particularly Immanuel Kant because he's called the father of cosmology. Yeah, and read his critique of pure reason and says, this doesn't seem to be on target of what I know to be true about the universe. But then I realized more than 90% of the world's population is involved in some serious way with a religion. And all these religions are based on the fact that there is a God that created the universe. So I began to go through these different religions. I started off with the Hindu Vedas. And uh, they basically promote the oscillating universe theory, or what we call the reincarnating universe theory, how the universe goes through these cycles of beginnings and endings. Uh, but they got the number wrong. They said that you get a reincarnation of the universe every 4.32 billion years. And we know that the universe in which we live is older than that. And uh, also, there's way too much entropy in the universe to permit any kind of rebound. So I put Hinduism aside, then I looked at Buddhism, looked at Islam, looked at Zoroastrianism, Baha'i, looked at a number of different faiths, and finally, I picked up a Bible that was given to me in a public school. The Gideons at that time were allowed to come into public schools and uh, give Bibles to the students. So I had one of those Gideon Bibles. Okay, so you picked it up and you looked at the first page and what happened? The first page blew me away. It's the account of creation. And it's a chronological account of creation, Genesis 1. And I'd been steeped in the scientific method all 12 years of my public school education. I was taught to always apply the scientific method to everything I analyze. But I looked at Genesis 1 what stunned me is that it perfectly followed the scientific method. Now, I was naive. I didn't realize where the scientific method came from. Nine years later, I discovered, well, it comes from Scripture and from Reformed theology. But I applied that scientific method and realized everything described in Genesis 1 is in the correct chronological order and everything is correctly described. The best I'd found in all my search of the other religious texts uh, was one account that got 2 out of 14 right. The Bible got a perfect score. 
Yeah, and we're not talking about the fact is when you looked at the word day, yam, that uh, you assumed it was 24 hours. You already knew from astronomy that that wasn't true. And you also looked it up in your Hebrew, English lexicon well, John, or dictionary. Right away I realized these days in Genesis 1 can't be 24 hours because the word day takes on three distinct definitions right in the English language text. Creation day one, it's using the word day for the daylight hours. Creation day four, it uses the word day for 24 hours. But Genesis 2-4 uses the word day for the entirety of creation history. And only the first six days are closed off with an evening and morning phrase, meaning that each of these days has a definite start time and a definite end time. There was no evening morning phrase for the seventh day. And the text says that's when God rests from his work of creation. Now, part of my story is my parents were worried I was being obsessive about astronomy. And they said, we've got to get Hugh looking at something besides astronomy and physics. So when I was 11, they bought our family this big, thick book on evolutionary biology. I was the only one in the family that read the book. <laughs> but I told my parents, Mom, Dad, the numbers don't add up. We have all these new phyla, classes, and orders appearing before humanity, but none of that happens after humanity. And they said, well, go ask your teachers. My teachers couldn't help me. The professors at the university didn't have an answer. Genesis 1 had the answer. For six days God creates. On the seventh day he stops creating. So the fact that Genesis 1 and 2 answered the fossil record enigma that was a huge encouragement for me. This book indeed may be inspired by yeah. the one that created the universe. And we're going to show them through uh, the cosmology that there are other proofs that you came in. But I want to go right to, besides the science, you realize that the Creator had some information about you as a human and your relationship to Him. And you realize that uh, you were one who had broken his laws. You were not the person that he wanted you to be. And so that stung you and it also did what? Well, comparing the Bible to these other holy books, the Bible had the most beautiful and elegant message of moral behavior. And I was really impressed by that. I says, this is what I want to live up to. And so for a period of about two years, I did my best to live up to that moral standard that the Bible talks about, but realize I can't achieve it. But as I read through the Bible, I realized God is basically speaking to all humanity, saying, uh, you're not able to do what I want you to do, to be morally perfect, but I'm prepared to give you what you can't do for yourself. And that's why the creator of the universe came here to planet Earth, lived a life amongst us, and demonstrated a life of moral perfection. I mean, the fact that Jesus was able to tell a large audience where his mother was present and his four brothers were present, I am morally perfect. Who of you can accuse me of any moral imperfection? And I said, you're not going to fool your mother. You're not going to fool your brothers. This man really was who he said. Nobody objected. And yet he on the cross made a transfer saying, I'm willing to do for you what you can't do for yourself. Pay the penalty for your moral imperfection and trade my moral perfection for your moral imperfection. And I've got to give credit to the Gideons 
they also explain, hey, uh, God is making that offer to you. It's an offer that's too good to turn down, but he knows better than you do what's best for your life. To make this work, you not only have to receive his offer of forgiveness for all of your offenses against him and the rest of humanity, you need to make him the master of your life. Take direction from him, because he knows better than you do what's best for you. And I said, that just makes rational sense. Yeah, John 1, 12 says, but as many as received him, to them gave you power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. It's not only believing, but you have to receive him. And there was a night when you put your name in the Gideon Bible, talk about that. Yeah, I remember that. I was praying for several hours saying, God, make me a Christian. Uh, I'm too proud. Give me the humility that I need. And, uh, you know, I kept asking God to do something, but what I kept hearing back from God is, look, you need to take the step. Humble yourself before me, and I'll grant your request. And finally I understood that, and it was 1.06 in the morning, one August night, I signed my name in the back of that Gideon Bible, committing my life to Jesus Christ. And having spent 18 months studying the Bible an hour or two a night, I realized that commitment also meant I needed to share what had happened in my life with my friends, my fellow students, and professors. So I immediately began uh, the mission of telling others how they can experience the same thing I experienced. Yeah, and we're going to talk about this. The fact is you've talked to about 300 university uh, seminars where you've had some of the top scientists in the world. You know them all. In fact, we're going to go through one program uh, just about every top name, and I'm going to ask you to talk about them, why they made statements about the fact it looks like this universe has been put together for a reason, and uh, that's coming up a little later on. We're also going to talk about quantum cosmology. We're going to talk about your favorite quasars. We're going to talk about all kinds of great things coming up in the program. So, folks, I hope that you'll stick with us, and uh, we will uh, uh, be talking about a lot of topics that have to do with science, but also how that science shows that the God of the Bible is actually present and could be present in your life. Now, thanks for joining us today, but please stay tuned because I've got a personal word for you in just a moment. Stay tuned for scenes from next week's program. Thanks for joining me today. If you'd like to have all of the information in our six TV programs with Dr. Hugh Ross, they're available on two DVDs for a gift of $78. Now, in program one, Dr. Ross explains things that happened when the universe was 100 billionth of a trillionth of a trillionth of a second old that made it possible for the universe to be the right size at this time in history so that we can have life on Earth. In program two, we know that in our Milky Way galaxy, there are about 300 to 400 billion stars, yet there are at least about two trillion galaxies in the universe with billions and billions of more stars. Why did God have to create so many stars and galaxies in the universe so human life could exist on Earth? In program three, why did the COBE satellite in 1992 give scientists convincing proof 
that the cosmic background radiation of the universe proved the Big Bang model was true. Then, in program four, can we change climate change? An astronomer, Dr. Hugh Ross, gives scientific solutions to climate change and explains how we can stabilize the climate to benefit all life on planet Earth and to benefit us economically and to benefit our health and the health and well-being of all of humanity. In program five, Dr. Ross tells us why many of the world's leading physicists, astronomers, and cosmologists that used to be atheists changed their mind after studying the intricate design of the universe and they now believe in God or an all-powerful designer. In program six, Dr. Ross talks about how the Bible predicted information about the creation of the universe that only the creator who created it would know. What does that tell us about the Bible? Now, in addition to these six programs on DVD, if you'd like to read Dr. Hugh Ross's 333-page book called The Creator and the Cosmos, it is available for a gift of only $15. If you'd like to have all six programs plus the book, they are available together for a gift of only $90. You may order these items right now by calling us at 1-800-805-3030. That's 1-800-805-3030. You may call that same number any day this week, 24 hours a day, or you may order these items at our website right now at jashow.org, where we have a secure place for you to give your gift. That's jashow.org. And then, if you live in Canada, would you please call us at 1-866-746-5803. That's 1-866-746-5803. And our Canadian website is jashow.ca. That's jashow.ca. And when we receive your gift, we'll send you a receipt and a personal thank you. And I'll appreciate your help very much. Next week on The John Ankerberg Show. If the universe is really designed to make possible a home for humanity, and given the vastness of the universe, uh, its age, its extent, all of its components, that's a lot of investment to make a home for humanity. And so that told me that whatever is responsible for the universe must have a very high value and probably some specific purposes for us human beings. And it's something I noticed about humanity, regardless of their philosophical worldview perspective, they all have this sense that we possess some kind of purpose, value, and destiny. Where did that come from? Uh, that's not something you'd expect from an evolutionary process, and it's built only into human beings. The rest of the life on planet Earth doesn't share that. So that was another piece of evidence maybe the cosmic creator indeed has a purpose and a destiny for we human beings.
Our goal is to present the evidence for the gospel worldwide and to encourage Christians in their walk with the Lord. This program is sponsored by the John Ankerberg Show Ministries and is made possible by the grace of God and your faithful prayers and gifts.